Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as we share the latest on COVID-19 with our resident experts. My name is Vicki Vesaliga, and I am the director of the Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP, and I'll be your host. I have the pleasure to be chatting with Elise McDonald about distinguishing between sensitivity and specificity as it relates to COVID testing. Thanks so much for joining us today, Elise. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Let's get started talking about everyone's favorite topic, statistics. Um, <laughs> although it's not always everyone's favorite, but it is probably the most essential in the pharmacist knowledge arsenal. So we're starting to see a lot of uh, COVID-19 related tests, including those for active disease, antibodies, uh, and there's often some confusion about how to interpret the reliability of these tests. I think, for example, recently there was a governor somewhere who had a false positive. So, um, you know, in that vein, we hear a lot about things having a test that's has a high sensitivity and maybe a low specificity. Um, can you review uh, the definitions of sensitivity and specificity for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so sensitivity and specificity, what they tell us is the degree of reliability in a test. And so let's start with sensitivity. So this is the ability to identify the disease or those patients who are truly infected with the virus. Uh, in in this case, since it's COVID related. So basically, sensitivity gives us the positive cases and tells us that the test got it right because the person is truly infected. And so basically, with sensitivity, we're looking at how well the test detects the infection or um, the disease. And with specificity, we're looking at the ability to identify no disease, so, or those patients who are not infected with the virus. And so with specificity, we are thinking about how well the test accurately can determine that a patient does not have an infection or disease. And so I, in an ideal world, uh, which, you know, really doesn't happen, but in, if we had such a case, we would want a test that had 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity. Um, But really, that really doesn't happen. And there are always going to be some false positives and some false negatives as well. So I'm glad you talked about false positives and false negatives. Um, And then their corollaries, true positives and true negatives. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what those are and what they mean for interpreting results? And then just kind of like a general question uh, for the purposes of diagnostics, if you had to choose, which is more important, specificity or sensitivity? I'm happy to answer these questions for you. The sensitivity will calculate the true positive. So that's what I just described in my answer to the previous question. So again, the true positive, those who are really infected with the virus and it addresses false negatives. So those who really are infected, but the test resulted in a negative result. 
Um, and then specificity will calculate the true negatives. So as I described before, again, those who are not infected with the virus, and it'll address the false positives. So those who are not really infected with the virus, but for whatever reason, the test resulted in a positive finding. So basically the test was wrong. Um, you know, when we're thinking about sensitivity and specificity, we really also need to talk about negative predictive value and positive predictive value. Um, so I'll describe those a little bit um, right now. So the negative predictive value is the proportion of individuals who really do not have the infection caused by the virus when the test result was negative, so true negative. And then the positive predictive value is the proportion of individuals who actually have the virus when the test said the patient was infected, so true positive. So with the negative and predictive, or sorry, negative and positive predictive values, we're looking at proportions versus um, reliability of the test like we did with sensitivity and specificity, but they're all interrelated. And so with positive predictive value, and negative predictive values, these values are affected by the prevalence of the condition. So the proportion of the population who has the disease and the sensitivity and specificity of a given test. So just by definition, the positive predictive value is directly proportional to prevalence. So as the prevalence of a disease decreases, the positive predictive value will also decrease. And so the opposite is true for negative predictive value. So as the prevalence decreases, the negative predictive value increases. So what you really want um, is a test that is validated in a population with a high prevalence of the infection. Because once the setting changes, the positive predictive value may change based on prevalence changing within the population. And so I actually, my personal opinion is that pharmacists should be most concerned with positive predictive value of a test more so than sensitivity or specificity. But in uh, speaking with some other people, you know, some may say that sensitivity is most important because you know, you. You, if it's a higher sensitivity, then you know a positive probably really means a positive. Um, but if you get a negative, it doesn't necessarily mean a negative for sure, because if you took a test again the next day, you could be a positive um, with this certain infection. And so if that was the scenario, then you would want confirmatory tests that have a high specificity if you had a test that uh, had uh, good sensitivity. And so, so I think that is a little bit confusing sometimes for people to understand. And, and I think just from a clinical perspective, that's why I think positive predictive value is what pharmacists should be more concerned about because it's based on the prevalence changing within the population as a whole. And it seems like it's probably a little bit more reflective as well. As, as we're seeing COVID cases uh, surge and ebb and flow, um, it's probably a little bit more of a, an informed decision as opposed to, um, you know, worrying about sensitivity and specificity. Yeah, I think so. Um, again, like I said, there could be 
people to debate that, um, but just based on definitions and how you use um, all four of those values, that's, that's what I think. So related, but a little bit of a pivot. Let's talk about the incredible number of studies coming out related to COVID-19 therapies. As we know, the gold standard for research are randomized controlled trials with large sample sizes. Uh, given the acuity of COVID-19 and how quickly patients can deteriorate, what sort of things should pharmacists be looking for when studies are published, which are often underpowered? Can you tell us a little bit about power and its significance in a study and how it relates to translating to patient care? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to, to try to explain this. So I think one important aspect to consider uh, when reviewing these vast amount of articles that are, are coming out, I don't even know if any one person would be able to keep up with the, the information and how fast it's changing. It seems to be more of a village effort, uh, if you will. But I think one thing to consider is how the authors were planning to account for dropouts if patients deteriorate, deteriorate quickly, thus making the patient no longer potentially eligible for their specific trial. And so usually the methods should be described in the, the method section in the article and determined a priori, so before the start of the trial. Um, and then usually the study team would have taken the, the number of dropouts into account during their power calculation. And so as a reminder, power is the ability to detect a difference uh, between groups if one truly does exist. And so if there is variability in the data, then there could be a greater need for a larger sample size. And so when calculating power, we're thinking about alpha or type 1 era, error, beta, type 2 error, and delta, which is um, also known as effect size. So all three of those come into play when we're thinking about power. And so um, alpha or type 1 error corresponds to the probability of concluding there is a difference when really there is no difference between the treatment groups. And so basically it's the probability the authors are willing to accept. And so increasing the number of patients in a trial will help decrease the probability of this kind of type one error from occurring. Beta is the probability of concluding there is no difference when in fact there is a difference between treatment groups. And so to decrease the probability of this error from occurring, the study team can increase the number of subjects, uh, thereby potentially increasing power. They could also increase the size of the difference that the authors think is important for the outcome that they are studying. And then delta is, uh, again, the effect size, and it's based on what the study team expects to see the change in the outcome as a result of the specific intervention for that study. And so all three of the variables come into play when determining power. So for COVID-19 trials, there could very likely be large variability within the data that's causing a larger sample size and higher enrollment goals that would be needed to meet power in order to determine if there truly is a difference between treatment groups. And where power 
really comes into play too is um, when you're reviewing the results of a study, um, for example, let's say there wasn't any difference between uh, the treatment groups. And so we would think that the intervention wasn't very effective in helping treat the infection or maybe help with one of the symptoms or complications from the COVID-19 um, syndrome. And so the study didn't meet its power for one reason or another. So because the study didn't meet its power, we really don't know if there truly isn't a difference between the treatment groups because we don't know, we didn't have enough people to be able to show that there was a difference between the treatment groups. And so that's why powers uh, evaluating the power before you start a study and kind of knowing what what you're willing to accept for your alpha and your beta and what you want what you expect your delta or your effect size to be is so important because if you get a negative result, you don't know if it's because you didn't have enough people in the study or if because there truly is no difference between the intervention and your control group. So another big part of um, evaluating tests, I think is when we talk about um, interventions is numbers needed to treat and numbers needed to harm. Uh, can you tell us how authors come up with these numbers and how we should apply them to the studies that we're reading? Sure. Number needed to treat and number needed to harm are type of measures of effect. And they these measures of effect are definitely important for pharmacists to know how to calculate because the values themselves may or may not be explicitly stated in the article. And so the number needed to treat will tell you how many people need to be treated in order to see the outcome or benefit in one patient. And so this value is calculated using what is called the absolute risk reduction. And so the absolute risk reduction could also be called attributable risk. And so this value accounts for the actual values rather than just the proportion of the value that tells you a quantity um, risk is decreased or maybe increased depending on what you're looking at. So for number needed to treat, when you're looking at the actual number that you get from the calculation, ideally you want as small a number of, as possible. So ideally you would want one to be your number needed to treat, but that is unlikely to be the case. So based on the parameters of the study and the disease that is in question, you can assess what number needed to treat you are willing to accept when weighing um, the risk benefit ratio of the disease and the outcomes. And so for number needed to treat, again, you want as low a number as possible. Consequently, um, or conversely on number needed to harm is similar to number needed to treat, except that it's really looking more at safety aspects and so um, often could be used for adverse events from an intervention. And so because this value is focused on safety, you would want the value of number needed to harm to be high. So opposite of what you would want your number needed to treat value to be. 
So again, you would assess the value that you get based on the event that occurred and weigh the risk-benefit ratio for your patient. So I just want to point out that for these values, it's important to note that the number that you get for number needed to treat or number needed to harm really should not be extrapolated outside the confines of the study. So basically, the patients and conditions of the study should match your patients or your patient population to truly reflect or see the same number needed to treat or number needed to harm in your patients. And so, you know, that's probably, again, unlikely to happen. So you need to use your judgment, your clinical judgment as a pharmacist when you're evaluating the actual value that you are getting for these measures of effect. And so, as I mentioned earlier, many times um, you as the astute pharmacist may need to calculate these values on, on your own and authors may not provide these to you. And so to truly critically evaluate an article and the results, you should calculate the measures of effect if they aren't provided. This way, you can make your own conclusions based on the patient population in, in your area. So um, to wrap up our stats talk, um, what other aspects of a study should pharmacists be critically evaluating as more and more studies are being published? Okay, this question is pretty loaded question um, and one that <laughs> I am glad you asked. And, but also one I could probably talk for hours <laughs> on, but I promise I won't do that. <laughs> um, so I'll just provide some highlights on ideally what I think a pharmacist should review when critically evaluating an article. So basically, I think a pharmacist should review the entire article from study title to references, again, being trained, um, having training in drug information, I might be a little bit biased here in how in-depth I go into when I'm evaluating an article, but nonetheless, you know, I, I still will review the title and review everything through to the references. Some parts of an article I may focus a little bit more on. So for example, a big focus when I am critically evaluating an article is on the method section, because that's going to tell me how well or how not well the authors described what they wanted to do. And, and that, that's the section I really care about. And I really want to know and understand because I that might help me when I'm reviewing the results for the study. So so in that in that method section, you'll there'll be a study description for their study design. And so in this section, I'm looking at the analysis of the type of study design and the conclusions the authors are wanting to make. And so one one thing to keep in mind is that for observational trials, uh, sometimes authors will try to allude to the fact that they are trying to say an intervention caused something to occur when really for an observational trial, by definition, you can only show an association. And so, so that's, that's one, one tip to keep in mind. I feel there could be some, quite a few observational trials coming out after the fact regarding different items for these COVID cases and throughout the, the country. And so, 
But in an experimental trial, so a parallel or a crossover study design, you can show a cause and effect relationship between your intervention and your outcome. And so you just need to make sure that the authors are accurately presenting their results based on the type of study design that they that they were conducting. Another uh, another big ticket item that comes into play when evaluating an article would be bias. And there are there are so many different types of bias that could come into play, especially with uh, these different COVID studies. So uh, one, for example, could be selection bias. And then this type of bias comes into play when the eligibility criteria are not properly identified. So what you want to look at is, did the authors adequately define their study population um, from an eligibility perspective? And do those definitions make sense in comparison to the types of patients that you see in your hospital COVID unit, for example? Another type of bias that I can see strongly affecting the results of different types of COVID trials would be confounding bias. And so this type of bias is often difficult to prevent. Um, because there may or may not be a way to control, for example, for some demographic items that might confound the study's results. So were patients sicker in a COVID treatment intervention group versus a control group, for example? And so uh, types of bias, we could have probably an eight-hour discussion on. So I would recommend people reviewing the different types of bias and keeping uh, keep that in mind when you are evaluating these various COVID trials. Something else to keep in mind uh, is um, the treatment interventions and if they are appropriate or not. And by appropriate, I mean, does the dosing make sense? Does the intervention itself make sense? Did the study authors describe why they, what their thought was in the introduction um, in why they chose that certain intervention. And so obviously for COVID, we we may or may not we may not know what is ideal. And so obviously that's why they're studying it. But does it make sense based on what we know as a pharmacist on that particular intervention? Some other things to consider when evaluating articles are types of data and the associated statistical test used to analyze that data. Uh, would, did the authors use appropriate tests for uh, the data that they are uh, presenting? And so the statistical analysis should be accurate and be defined in the method section. I, I feel like a lot of people may skip over the statistical description um, in that method section, but I really really can't stress enough how important it is to make sure you're understanding that they were using the correct tests for to analyze the data so that you know if the results are, um, you can trust them or not. Uh, something else to, to think about is the outcomes. So is the article presenting the results for this specified primary outcome or other outcomes, like if there are some secondary or exploratory outcomes? Does the abstract present the results accurately? Because I have seen where the abstract reported incorrectly the true result of, for example, a primary outcome. And so it's why it's important to not just read an abstract 
but read the whole study. Is there any data judging going on? And so what that is, is that uh, you relook at the same data over and over again in a different way in hopes to find a different result, perhaps maybe a positive result, um, because there is some publication bias where only positive results would be reported and published. And then something else that's interesting to read and kind of understand is the discussion section. And so does it discuss strengths and limitations of the study and also the design of the study? And are do the conclusions um, make sense based on the results and how they were presented in the article? And so though you, you know again basically from title to references that's that's what I'm looking at to critically evaluate an article, realizing there are so many articles that are published regarding COVID-19 research that it will be very difficult to critically evaluate every single article. But if you want to make a clinical decision based on an article, I feel like you, you are doing your patients an injustice if you don't truly critically evaluate that article. Um, and if you just read the abstract, that just, I just don't think that that's optimum patient care. Um, and then something else I wanted to point out that it was, it's actually kind of interesting that as of August 9th of this year, Retraction Watch, which is, which is a group that looks at differences and trends in uh, studies that are uh, retracted from the from the literature. And so Retraction Watch stated that as of August 9th, up to 31 COVID-19 related articles have been retracted already. And so I really think this um, number will increase. And, I, you know, I, wa I wanted to bring this point up because this is exactly why I feel it is really important to critically evaluate articles before making clinical decisions when you're caring for your patients. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, a retraction uh, resource because uh, I didn't I didn't know that existed. So that's that's good to know um, and good for our listeners to uh, check out um, when you're you know taking a look at studies. So that kind of wraps up our stats piece. Uh, one of the things I always ask all of my guests is two questions. One, the first one is, what are you doing in the midst of COVID-19 to maintain your well-being and resilience? We in September we had we got a puppy. And so um, he is a standard poodle. His name is Tucker. And so we have been doing a lot of training and spending a lot of time outside uh, walking him and playing um, because if not, he will destroy the house, which would add different stressors uh, to, to life. Um, and so, um, it, you know, and I just, it's just, we, no matter the weather, we're outside walking him twice a day. And, you know, a fit dog, I feel like you are a fit person then too, because you you feel that it's important for your animals to be healthy. And then subsequently, then, you know, you are getting some exercise and taking care of yourself as well. Well, and fur therapy is a wonderful thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he is so sweet and you just, you know, he just loves you unconditionally and all, all animals do, I feel. And so, 
Yeah, it's just been really great to have him because this time, had this occurred last year at this time, we wouldn't have had a dog yet. And I just think, oh my gosh, how, how would I have been? I would have been so depressed, I think, <laughs> um, if I didn't have him. So... Meanwhile, my cats think because, um, you know, I'm working from home that they get to be fed every two hours. (laughs) (laughs) They're lucky they're cute. He does like to join meetings sometimes. So, in fact, he he provides entertainment in the background sometimes. (laughs) It not just only helps my well-being, but other people who are on the calls with me as well. That's right. That's right. So the second question I ask all of my guests are, um, as we know, one of the important ways to avoid the spread of COVID-19 is to make sure you wash your hands for a key 20 seconds. So a lot of people like to sing a song in their head when they do this. So my question for you is, what song are you washing your hands to? (laughs) So I'm always, I was always taught to say the alphabet twice. So not like really fast, obviously, like you might do when you were a kid, you know, I don't know, my sister and I used to have competitions on who could take a shower the fastest, you know, but so it's not that kind of a thing, but I always was taught to wash my hands um, and say the, say the ABCs twice, go through it twice. And so that's, that's what I do. And I did that before COVID. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm just, I'm odd that way, I guess. I don't know. Um, and also something else that is so strange to me is that the lack of soap, hand soap that you can could find in the stores. And, you know, I said to my friends and my husband, I said, what were people not washing their hands before right? COVID? I don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> so... Yeah, I was always a little bit germ cautious, um, not extreme, but always a little germ cautious before before COVID. So this really hasn't instilled anything less in me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Elise for joining us to discuss COVID-19 and ACHP's efforts to provide pharmacists with the most up-to-date lessons learned and resources. I'd like to share some of those resources with you now. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out ACHP's COVID-19 Resource Center, found at ashp.org backslash COVID-19, which serves as a clearinghouse for pharmacy leaders, clinicians, and resources for patients. ACHP has developed policy recommendations for policymakers. Ask your legislators to support ACHP's COVID-19 recommendations by sending an email using the online advocacy center at advocate.ashp.org. I also encourage all of you to listen to some of our COVID-19 podcasts related to advocacy in which our Government Affairs Division discusses some of the efforts that we have done with COVID-19 and government relations. Be kind to your mind. Headspace is now the exclusive meditation mindfulness app for members. With Headspace, you can learn the life-changing skills of meditation and mindfulness in just a few minutes a day. Studies show that meditation helps reduce stress and burnout in healthcare professionals while boosting happiness, compassion, and resilience with overall life satisfaction. Search Headspace in the search bar at ACHP.org. Also, if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to ACHP's podcast as we'll be posting more lessons learned, practice, and therapeutic management of COVID-19. I'm Vicki Basilica, and thank you for joining us today.
Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.